Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie. And today we're going to talk about the very important topic of extra-biblical revelation, the idea of God talking to us outside the pages of Scripture. Maybe you've heard it put this way, God told me, God showed me in a dream, I just feel like God is saying, or I listen for God's still small voice to tell me what to do. Amy, I know you've heard those expressions and many others just like I have. I have. And you know, Michelle, there are so many different iterations of this idea that God is talking to us throughout the day, uh, telling us what to do, what decisions to make, and so forth. And as hard as it might be for some Christians to believe, these ideas are all unbiblical. And uh, we've got a friend here with us tonight who literally wrote wrote the book on extra-biblical revelation, as well as several other books. He is Pastor Jim Osman, and Jim's excellent book on extra-biblical revelation is called God Doesn't Whisper. It is really good, ladies, and, and I will tell you, I'm listening to it on audio right now, and uh, it is fantastic and highly recommended. He is going to help us understand why this teaching that God speaks to us outside of Scripture is not just extra-biblical, but unbiblical. Jim, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hey, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Uh, we appreciate you too. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? All right. I pastor a church in rural North Idaho up near the U.S.-Canadian border. Uh, I pastor Kootenai Community Church. It's a church that I've attended since I was a teenager, and this church was actually instrumental in my salvation. And after I got saved in high school and went to Bible college, met my bride, we got married and, and came back here to Idaho. I was serving in the church for a few years and attending. And then they asked me if I would take over as pastor, which I did in 1996. So I've been doing that since 1996 in the same church for all these years. And uh, I love the people. I love the area. Uh, I love this congregation. And I'm happy to be here and happy to serve the Lord here. It's, it's a great body of believers. Um, I am married to the same woman for all of those years since 1993. Her name is Deidre. And we have four children, all of whom are married and two of whom have children. And uh, two of those couples are expecting children. Um, so it's uh, we have four grandchildren, two here, two on the way. Oh, that's so fantastic. Well, we really, really appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about this this issue that's so, so important. It has so many people confused. When Amy and I discuss a biblical topic, we always find it helpful to start by defining our terms and, and carefully delineating our categories. So could you start by explaining and giving some examples of things that would fall into the category of extra biblical revelation that's unbiblical. Maybe some things like we said before, God told me, God showed me in a dream and so on. And then also some examples of things that we're not talking about tonight, things that are biblical or are not examples of extra biblical revelation. For example, when I'm reading my Bible in context, rightly handled and from a good translation, and I learned something new from the text that I had never noticed before, that's not unbiblical, extra-biblical revelation. Uh, can you give us some examples of what we are and are not talking about tonight? Yeah, we can, we'll answer that question by moving backwards through the question. The, the second question they asked really had to do with the distinction or the difference between 
uh, revelation and illumination. Illumination is when God takes already revealed truth and helps us to understand it. The Spirit of God teaches us. He opens our eyes to it. The light of truth shines upon our hearts and our and our minds, and we understand either another angle to that truth or another depth of that truth or its connection to my life and my application. I'm convicted by it or comforted by it or encouraged by it because I understand it and and my heart is warmed by it. None of that is God speaking. None of that is extra biblical revelation or none of that is really revelation at all because what you're experiencing there is the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. You're reading the word of God. You're understanding the word of God in its context. That's illumination, the Spirit of God revealing to you what has already been revealed or allowing you to see, opening your eyes and your heart to what's already been revealed. Extra biblical revelation or revelation, we should say, is God revealing truth. So extra biblical revelation is truth revealed outside of Scripture through some sort of supernatural means. And so into that category fall all kinds of methodologies and ways that people think that God speaks to us, nudgings and promptings and impressions and a warming sensation in my heart or conviction, or I hear a random voice, or I think I hear from God, or people call it the still small voice. That's kind of the the catch-all category, the sort of the umbrella term that's used to just refer to any kind of inclination or impression that I might have that I say, oh, that must be, that must be the voice of God speaking to me. Uh, it would also include like visions and dreams and and God appearing in your in our midst. Uh, those would be ways that God has revealed himself in the pages of scripture. So when we talk about what God has revealed, I am I am a cessationist, card-carrying cessationist Protestant. So I think that God has revealed himself in the 66 books of scripture, in the person of Jesus Christ, and those 66 books of scripture all point to Christ, the Old Testament looking forward to him, the New Testament revealing and explaining that revelation. And that outside of that, all of the warm feelings and fuzzies and nudgings and, and uh, promptings and impressions we could we could say that maybe God is supernatural, providentially guiding our steps through those things, but more likely we are just having spiritual experiences or we're having emotional experiences that often people just simply attribute to the voice of God. Um, those things are not the voice of God. Those things are not revelation. When I'm when I'm sitting in my car and I think, oh, I should pray for that missionary in uh, Hungary. Um, because he's going through a difficult time and I start to pray for him. And then later on, a week later, I find out through his prayer newsletter that right about the same time that I was praying, uh, he was leading a guy to Christ on the mission field. That's not extra biblical revelation. That may be the spirit of God moving in my heart for me to pray for a certain person at a certain time. And I pray for that person. And I and and God uses that prayer to help accomplish something, and probably with the prayers of hundreds or thousands of other saints. But that's not revelation, nor is it the voice of God. It's the um, the Spirit of God does all kinds of things in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, sanctifying us, comforting us, etc. And those things are not revelation. They're not the voice of God. The voice of mm-hmm. God is contained in the pages of Scripture. Oh, thanks for explaining that. Yes. Um, you know, and, and when we talk to people who um, believe that they hear God's audible voice all the time, that there's quite a few scriptures that people will point to. And, they, and there's four that seem to be kind of rising to the top. And I'm wondering if if, if we share these uh, verses that we often hear, could you share what they actually mean? And, and the first one is um, John 10, my sheep hear my voice. That one's often used. Um, the second one would be 1 Kings 19. 12, that still small voice. Um, Judges 6, Gideon's fleece, you know, I'm going to put a fleece out and see. And then uh, Colossians 3.15, uh, saying that I have a peace about 
something. Uh, so that that might be God's voice. Uh, what do you say when, you know, biblically uh, with Scripture, how do you explain that to people? Yeah, so those are, are passages that are quite frequently pressed into service by people, often well-meaning, who want to teach that we should be listening for the whispers of the Savior. And they will say um, things like, for instance, God has promised that he always speaks to his sheep. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. And so we should be expecting that the shepherd will regularly speak to us. Mark Batterson in his book and uh, um, Charles Stanley and Priscilla Schreier, they all press John 10 into service. If you look at John 10 and you read that discourse there in John 10, it is a discourse that Jesus gives on the heels of a healing in John chapter 9. In John chapter 9, there is the healing of the man who was born blind and the Pharisees. After that man was uh, was healed, they came and they persecuted not only the man, but Jesus and even targeted the man's yeah. uh, parents. And Jesus then confronts the Pharisees and he is speaking to them in John chapter 10, the Pharisees who were rejecting him. And he is saying to them, um, look, you guys are, are false shepherds, you're, you're hirelings, and you don't really care for the sheep. And here was a man, the man born blind, whom Jesus had saved and opened his eyes. And, and the physical miracle was merely a, um, a demonstration of what was happening to him spiritually. He had eyes to see the Savior at the end of John chapter 9. That man gets saved. And Jesus in John 10 is calling that man his sheep. And he is saying to the Pharisees, you are not of my sheep. You have not been given to me by the father. The father who has given my sheep to me has given the sheep to me and I save them. I die for my sheep. He says this in John chapter 10, he laid down my life for my sheep. I die for my sheep. I save my sheep. I secure my sheep and I, I secure them everlastingly. That is what the father has sent me to do. Jesus is not describing individual personalized revelation or hearing whispers about which Thanksgiving turkey to buy or which carpenter to hire for your remodel job or which car to buy or what college to attend or anything like that. Jesus is using it as an analogy, and John calls it an analogy in John chapter 10, verse 6. He says this, um, this analogy Jesus was giving to them, he's not speaking of literal physical hearing the voice of the shepherd. He's speaking about Jesus calling his sheep to salvation. My sheep, whom the Father has given to me, they hear me call them to salvation, and they come to me and I give them eternal life. Jesus does not say, my sheep hear my voice and I tell them what to make for dinner, or what woman to marry, or what car to buy, and they go out and do that. He is saying, my sheep, those whom the Father has given to me, those whom the Father has elected, I call them to me, and those whom the Father has elected will always hear him and infallibly come to salvation, and he will infallibly save them, give them eternal life, and they will infallibly be glorified because they will never perish. That's John 10. All right. Uh, what was the second one, Gideon? First uh, Kings 19.12, the still small, still small voice. voice. Yes. Yeah. That one, that's Elijah, of course, when he goes into the cave and, and he hears the the thunder and the fire outside of the cave and, and he is distraught. And then it says that he went out, he heard a still small voice and went outside the cave. That's an, an interesting translation of a phrase that's used nowhere else in the Old Testament. And it's translated variously as the, the stillness of a whisper, the stillness of a gentle breeze, uh, the blowing of a gentle breeze, a still silence, things like that. It's It's not describing revelation. It is describing something that Elijah heard outside the cave that required him to go outside in order to hear more uh, uh, more ably. And it is not describing a voice inside Elijah's head. And the way people use that phrase, you know, Elijah's driving in his chariot along the Jordan River and he hears some impression in his head and decides that he's going to go do something. That's how people use the phrase today. But the phrase just simply referred to a sound outside the cave that Elijah had to go outside to hear. He didn't sit inside the cave and 
and continue to get the revelation or continue to listen to the voice, he went outside. So it was aud- obviously an audible sound. Um, we don't know that it was a voice. It's translated as voice, but it doesn't necessarily mean a voice. It was an audible sound that he went outside to to hear. Um, interestingly, Elijah, all the way through the accounts of Elijah, it says very clearly, the word of the Lord came to him. The word of the Lord said to him, the Lord said unto him, and Elijah heard and understood everything that was said to him every time the Lord spoke to him. But then proponents of hearing the voice of God theology take that one phrase, still small voice, which is oddly translated a number of different ways. And it's very unclear exactly what it was that Elijah heard. And they blow that up into this entire theology of hearing from God so that everything becomes the still small voice. Coincidences, signs, impressions, random thoughts that pass through your head. And people use that phrase to just simply describe the the leading of God in the everyday life and circumstances. And that is not what the phrase means anywhere in the book of Elijah. Or sorry, anywhere in the account with Elijah. The third one was Gideon. People talk about the fleece. Um, they use this all the time. I used this when I was in high school after I got saved. I had a friend who who told me that this is how you discern the will of God. You put out a fleece. If you want to know if you should ask a girl out, then you, then you put out the fleece and you pray, Lord, if, um, you know, if it's your will for me to ask this girl out, then when she shows up, uh, you know, let her be wearing pants. And if it's not your will, then let her be wearing a dress. And then you take these circumstantial signs as infallible indicators of God's will concerning what you should or should not do. And that's how that's called putting out a fleece. And of course, that comes from the account of Gideon, who heard um, perfectly clearly what God wanted him to do in response to the Midianite oppression. And and he doubted God and questioned God and was very reluctant to actually obey God. The fleece was not an act of faith. It was an act of fear. And so Gideon was putting that out there as one solid, one last sign, irrefutable sign that what he had heard God clearly speak to him and what he understood was actually what God wanted him to do. And the fact that God didn't destroy Gideon or punish him is, um, is a, a miraculous and gracious thing in itself because that's exactly what Gideon needed. In fact, the second time he puts out the fleece, Gideon talks about being fearful and asking for God's patience because Gideon knew what God wanted him to do. And he asked for a supernatural sign, which is not the kind of thing that people who put out fleeces ever do. Nobody ever says, if you, if you, Lord, if you want me to ask Sue out, then make my car levitate. And if you want me to ask Maggie out, then make the truck levitate. Nobody ever asked for a supernatural sign. There are always these circumstantial signs that we can read our own desires into um, when they come to pass. So that's a, a misuse. Gideon was not questioning. Gideon was not needing direction from God in terms of not understanding what God wanted him to do. He had clear revelation from God, and it was an act of of unbelief that prompted Gideon to do that. And the fourth one, what was the fourth one now? Uh, Colossians 3.15, I have a piece about it. I have a piece about it. I had a pastor friend one tell me one time, you never make a decision unless you have a piece about it, unless you've received the peace. Mm -hmm. And this is supposed to be some sort of an internal peacefulness or quality of the heart um, where we are, we are trying to make a decision and we come to a decision. And if you don't have the peace, in other words, if you still have any kind of anxiety or stress over this decision, you shouldn't make it. But God reveals his will to us when we have this peace. And it comes from Colossians 3.15, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are also called. And in Colossians chapter 3, Paul's not talking about hearing a still small voice or getting revelation from God. He's not talking about that at all. He's talking about relationships within the body between masters and slaves and husbands and wives and children and parents and bondmen and freemen and and uh, the rich and the poor and people of different ethnicities, Jews and Gentiles. And he is saying in this one body, 
that that peace which characterizes Christ, the peace of Christ, is to rule corporately in your hearts so that there should not be any conflict in the body where you have infighting and division and schisms within the church body. It's the peace of Christ that should characterize our body life. He's not talking about how to test whether or not God is speaking to you. So those are four really good examples of how passages are are jerked out of their context and completely misused to prop up this false theology of hearing from God. Wow. I I just, it's so convoluted. You know, the, these people, they say that um, God is speaking today exactly like he did when he spoke in the Bible. And they, to, to support that, they pull all these verses out of context that have nothing to do with God speaking to people in the Bible and then, and then I, another thought that I had was that when God actually did speak to people in the Bible, it was nothing like what they're claiming, uh, the way that they're claiming that God speaks today. I mean, when, when God actually did speak to people in the Bible, like Elijah, like Paul, like Noah, whoever, what was the content of what he said to them? Was, was he helping them with personal life decisions, like who to marry or what to do for a living? Or was it, a little bit more substantive than that. And, and then how does that compare with the idea of hearing God's voice that's being taught today? Yeah, I have a little chapter in the book that deals with the dis- differences between the hearing the voice of God or what I call HVG theology and how the apostles made decisions. When you look through the book of Acts, divine guidance was um, uniquely rare, considering that you have this explosion of miraculous events taking place in the lives of the apostles. And the apostles were doing miracles, and Luke is not shy about recording those miracles. When you look at the people to whom divine guidance was given, it was the apostles and people closely associated with apostolic ministry. And then you look at the content of that divine revelation. It was rare in the book of Acts. There was only a few occasions in those 30 years that the book of Acts covers. And nearly without exception, the 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 incidences of unique, specific, supernatural divine revelation were given for the advancement of gospel preaching associated with apostolic ministry. So you didn't have Priscilla and Aquila deciding um, which marketplace to sell the tents in and getting God's guidance for that. (laughs) You don't have Timothy deciding which brand of wine to drink for his stomach's sake. And you don't have Apollos (laughs) asking God, um, you know, which uh, marketplace should I buy meat out of this week? And uh, what should we name our church? Those are not the kind of decisions that God gave supernatural divine guidance for. The, we don't have any example in the New Testament of the apostles sitting around and waiting for God to give them direction or even praying for God to reveal his will concerning these situations. You, you simply have them going about their their lives and their ministries, doing what they were commanded to do, which is to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. And then you have these instances where supernaturally and unmistakably, in order to direct the spread, the worldwide spread of the gospel, God supernaturally intervening in the lives of the apostles and giving direct divine guidance regarding issues. And it was always pertaining gospel ministry, never pertaining what what car to buy or what house to buy or where to live or what job to take. That was not the kind of divine guidance that was given in Acts. So your question is very appropriate. You're right. People who believe HVG theology will make the claim that God is is revealing himself and his will the same way today that he did in the New Testament. And then when you ask them what they mean by that, what kind of guidance they get and, and how are they getting this guidance, it looks nothing like what you actually see in Scripture at all. 
a great example of what the apostles, how the apostles um, made decisions is in Acts chapter 15 with the issue of Gentile believers and whether they should be circumcised or not. You have there the apostles gathering together and they they have this controversy. Uh, do we require circum- men to be circumcised, Gentiles to be circumcised, to be welcomed into the Christian church? Paul and Barnabas show up and recite all the miracles that God did among them as messengers of the gospel to the Gentiles. And then you have the apostles hashing this out, Peter and James and, and Paul, and they're going back to the Old Testament. Peter quotes the Old Testament. They're exegeting scripture. They come up with this decision. And then, it said, and then they say, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. And what they did was they... They said they, they took scripture. They came to the conclusion that said, this seems to be what us, that we and the Holy Spirit uh, believe to be the right and appropriate thing. And, and they went with it. And, and if any time in the history of the church, you would have expected the apostles to sit around and navel gaze and wait for God to, to speak to them through some impression or whisper or nudging or prompting or something, it would have been at that Jerusalem council in Acts 15. But they didn't do that. Instead, they studied scripture, came to the conclusion about what God's will is, and then went forward with it. So that brings up a good point about how we are to make uh, biblical decisions today, because we are to uh, pray for wisdom, correct? And so uh, can you explain to our listeners the biblical method of how we ought to be making decisions today? Yeah, and to be clear, I didn't invent this. I borrowed this from, uh, well, I would say that he didn't invent it either, but I, I borrowed the title from Gary Friesen's book, Decision Making and the Will of God. That was instrumental in helping me abandon my own commitment to hearing the voice of God theology back in the early 1990s. It was a theology I had adopted in Bible college because it was exposed to people who believed that and taught that. Uh, Early in the 1990s, uh, I'm going to say probably, see, I was married in 96, so probably around 95, sorry, 93. I was probably around 1995 or 96, I was exposed to Gary Friesen's book, Decision Making and the Will of God. And he contrasts the traditional model, which is what you, what we've been critiquing here in this in this time, with what he calls the wisdom model. The wisdom model is is basically this: when given an option between two decisions that we can make, we look at the revealed will of God in Scripture. The moral will of God is contained in Scripture, including both direct statements regarding the will of God, as well as moral principles and precepts and examples that Scripture contains. We consider the revealed moral will of God. Then we apply divine wisdom, which we get from knowing the moral will of God in the book of Proverbs, as well as the Psalms and Ecclesiastes, Old Testament literature. And we pray for wisdom, and then we make a decision, and we make that decision, and then trust God for the results. So ultimately, if you have two options and you want to choose between the two of them, as long as you are not violating the clear revealed will of God in Scripture, and you're not doing something foolish, which God warns us against in Scripture, then you are free to make whatever decision you want to make without fear that you are being disobedient to God. That's the wisdom model. So to apply that to taking a job in either Seattle or St. Louis, you have two jobs that are equal. You think the pay is equal. The situation seems equal. There's good churches in both locations, all things being equal. Um, you you look at those two job opportunities and in, in the schools, you're not compromising your family or anything. You you evaluate it all. The, the, the jobs are not asking you to do anything immoral against the revealed will of God. You've applied wisdom to the situation. Neither opportunity really looks like it would uh, be a foolish decision. Both of them look like it would be beneficial. You don't need a special voice from God to tell you to take the one in Seattle over St. Louis. If you would prefer to, to not have... Um, um, 
uh, hot summers and hot winters and hot falls and, <laughs> and hot springs. And you like a little bit of break from the hot weather and you want, you know, you've always kind of been a secret Seattle Seahawks fan. <laughs> you could take the job in Seattle without fearing that you are disobeying God's will. If you, uh, as long as you're not violating his moral will. Well, you can be a Green Bay Packer fan anywhere, but uh, but let me ask you this yeah. then, because <laughs> a lot of women will ask for uh, doors to be open or closed. You know, Lord, show me through an open door. Close those doors where I'm, that I'm not supposed to enter. Uh, what do you? What What is your thought on that? Yeah, so I have a chapter on open and closed doors as well. That phrase is used in Scripture. The term open door is used in Scripture. And again, that refers to gospel opportunities. When Paul talks about open doors, he is um, he uses the phrase actually um, in the Corinthian epistles. He says, there is a door open for me for effective ministry, and there are many adversaries. Now, the way Paul uses that phrase is interesting because we would typically associate the absence of adversaries, hostility or difficulty with an open door. Mm, But Paul says there's an open door for effective ministry and many adversaries. Most people would look at the many adversaries and say, well, obviously that's a closed door. But the apostle Paul didn't. He just, he just used that phrase to describe an opportunity for ministry. On another time, he uses the term uh, of open door to refer to an opportunity for ministry that he passed up actually one time. He passed that up because he was concerned about Titus. And so he left an open door opportunity for ministry to go take care of some friend issues with Titus. And there's no indication in scripture that Paul sinned by passing up the opportunity to minister and take advantage of the open door. So we use that term open door to refer, um, you know, I've, I've, I don't like my job now and I have an opportunity to take a job in Seattle. This must be an open door. Well, that's not how scripture uses that term. Scripture uses that term to refer to a gospel opportunity, opportunity for ministry. And whether we take or don't take that open door, that gospel opportunity for ministry depends upon circumstances. Sometimes you can take it. Sometimes you can't take it there. Sometimes those factors, those factors come into play and we have to pass on that opportunity. Other times we can seize that opportunity. So there's nothing in scripture that suggests that the open or closed door is the way that God infallibly leads us into making proper decisions, that if we have an open door, we have to take it because that's the leading of God. Not necessarily. Paul didn't. So you can take an open door or you might pass on an open door depending on other circumstances. Good. Yeah, thank you. You really have to just use the godly wisdom that he has promised to give us when we pray. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, think of how, think of how liberating this method, this method is. And this is it. When I read Gary Friesen's book, it set me free from all of this mystical, oppressive burden of how to make decisions. According to the traditional model, um, scriptures does not sufficiently tell me which woman to marry, which house to buy, which job to take, what ministry. Scripture doesn't address 99% of the decisions that I make each and every day. Scripture hasn't addressed 99% of the decisions I've made today at all. I mean, scripture gives me these guidance and these principles, but I need direct divine guidance according to the HVG model for all of these decisions. And you can never know which decision is a, is a crucial one and which one is completely inconsequential. Uh, my decision to go to Walmart in the afternoon as opposed to the morning might be the most consequential decision that I ever make if there's an armed robber at, uh, at Walmart in the afternoon and it costs me my life. So do I, do I wait for God to tell me whether to go to Walmart in the morning or the afternoon? You know, all of these decisions that I need to make each and every day are not addressed in scripture. Well, the traditional model says you, you wait and you hear from God. And so you wait for an impression, a still small voice. You pray about it. And once you get sort of an inkling or an impression, or once you see a, a, a verse jump off the page in scripture, 
then you want to then you want to take that and you want to test it. You want to test it against the Word of God. You want to test it against wisdom. Maybe get um, somebody else to confirm it or to not confirm it, and you never move forward to the decision until you have a confirmation. So there has to there's all these methods by which God speaks to us, and you always have to line up two or three of them because Scripture says by the mouth of two or three witnesses everything will be established. So you always need two or three of these methods for hearing from God. And once you get two or three of those to line up, if you have the peace in your heart that you can go forward with the decision. Well, my decision yeah. to take a shower this morning and to wear this shirt as opposed to go to the gym this morning and work out before I come and do this interview, that could be a consequential decision for my health, for my life, for the life of hundreds of others. Do I have to go through that burdensome process with every decision I make or just the really important ones? And how do I know which ones are really important? And if God wants me to make a certain decision in the day and I'm not thinking about it, I'm not listening to him, then I have to live with the guilt that if something bad has happened, if I got into a car accident on the way to Walmart this afternoon, maybe it was because I didn't stop to listen for the voice of God as to when I should go to Walmart. And if I had heard him tell me to go in the morning, I would have avoided the car accident. See the burden and the oppression that that puts on the, on the believer. It's just so onerous. Whereas biblically, if the Bible doesn't address that, I can make whatever decision I want. So long as I'm not violating the moral will of God and the wisdom of God, I can make whatever decision I want without fear that I'm disobeying God and I'm going to incur his displeasure. Absolutely. Mm. Um, So we were talking about praying, I guess a little bit, we're talking about praying for wisdom. Um, we're, and we're, then we're also talking about, you know, the, the hearing God's voice, people uh, waiting for God to speak to them. So when, how do you know the difference when a Christian is praying, what is the difference between things like genuine conviction of sin, or maybe a particular Bible verse that comes to mind that directly applies to what you're praying about and then what's the difference between that and then hearing the voice of God when you're praying? Yeah, the um, one of the criticisms or questions, I should say, that would be better phrased. One of the questions that I often get is, so then you must believe that the spirit of God isn't involved in anything that we do. I mean, where's the room for the spirit mm-hmm. of God if you're not going to go through this process and try and connect with him each and every day? And I would say that the spirit of God is involved in every decision that we make all of the time. He is guiding our steps. He is working in our hearts. He is always present with us. And and we can trust that. And we should believe that that is the case. And I'm not suggesting that we rule out the work of the spirit of God or that we never that we never consider what the spirit of God might be doing in our hearts and in our minds. So the Spirit of God does comfort us. He encourages us. He convicts us. When I'm reading scripture and I see something that I've never seen before, that's the illuminating work of the Spirit. And I give him thanks for that. When I'm reading through scripture and I come across a passage that talks about um, the fool who is quick to speak and slow to hear. And I think, oh yeah, that's exactly how I was treating my wife yesterday. And I, I feel guilty about that. I repent and and I, I ask the Lord for forgiveness and, and pray for strength and grace to be more charitable next time and to not speak so quickly, which leads to an argument. And then I'm I'm on my way to the to work and I feel prompted or I feel a, a burden to pray for somebody and I'm reminded of praying about a situation and I pray for that person. That is all the work of the Spirit of God. So He does all of those things and so many more things that we don't we aren't even aware of. Um, I, I would. My criticism of the charismatic movement or the continuationist movement, the hearing the voice of God people, is that they can only see the work of the Spirit of God in these superficial, emotional things that leave us with goosebumps and warm feelings. They never seem to see that the Spirit of God is working in so many other ways, even when we're not aware of it, we're not thinking about it, and we're not, we're not conscious of it. Um, the Spirit of God is, is providentially, sovereignly working in all of these ways. So 
So that, that, yes, the Spirit of God comforts us and convicts us, but that's not the voice of God. The Bible uses those words, comfort, encouragement, conviction, because those are the functions of the Holy Spirit. So when the Spirit convicts me, I don't say I heard the voice of God, I say the Spirit convicts me. When the Spirit comforts me, I feel encouraged. I can say the Spirit of God comforted me or encouraged me, um, but I don't say the Spirit of God spoke to me. So I got done preaching on Sunday. I preached on the warning passage in the book of Hebrews, and I had somebody come up and, and give me a, a compliment on the sermon. So thank you for that. That was very encouraging. You answered some questions. That was very helpful. I was just the Lord ministered through you to me today. I don't say I heard the voice of God. I say, man, this, the Spirit of God used one of his people to comfort and encourage me about the message that I just gave that I didn't think went all that swimmingly. <laughs> and, and so that was the work of the Spirit of God through one of his people to lift my heart and encourage me a bit and sort of strengthen me. But I don't say I heard the voice of God because we need to use biblical language to communicate biblical concepts. So when the Spirit of God encourages us, we say, I was encouraged. When we're convicted, we say we're convicted. That's not revelation. And in most of the time, that's not even illumination. It's just the work of the Spirit of God in the hearts and the minds and the souls of his people. I have to ask you about some church teachings now, because a, a lot of us uh, have long and winding roads in our past where we've been uh, in churches, or maybe we're looking for a church right now. And, and let's say that you're in a, a generally doctrinally sound church, and uh, perhaps a pastor does introduce the idea of hearing God's voice. I, I've heard that in my past. Uh, I had one pastor say, you know, if and when you hear uh, God's voice, it's either God voice, it's uh, the voice of the devil, or it's the voice of your own flesh, but it, it's one of the three. And, and you know, and I'm thinking, uh, that stuck with me. Now, now you've got the burden of trying to figure out which one it is, right? And if you miss right, it, then right. you can be punished for that, and you've displeased God. Yeah. And, uh, what a burden. What a yoke. It's, that's such a burden. It really is. But what should a woman do if she's, uh, say, in a church, and, it, and it's her church, let's say, and she hears a teaching either from the pulpit or uh, in one of the other ministries, going on there about, uh, you know, hearing God's voice and, and that we should be expecting that, uh, should she, how should she approach the subject? Uh, or if it's the pastor, then what? Yeah, I get this email probably once a month from somebody somewhere in the country mm -hmm. who says, my small group Bible study leader, just we're starting Priscilla Schreier's book on discerning the voice of God. Oh, yes. Or we're, my pastor is handing out uh, Henry Blackaby's book, Experiencing God. Um, it is, my counsel is even in good churches, sometimes things slip through the cracks. Sometimes things go through the, past the radar. Um, you might be in a good church where the eldership and the pastor is not on board with that. And they would be concerned if they found out that the women were studying Beth Moore's book or Priscilla Schreier's book. Um, in such a situation, I would always with hat in hand, encourage encourage the listener to go to their pastor, go to the elders and sit down and say, hey, I have concerns with this. I have concerns about this issue, and I, I don't think that this is biblical methodology. I don't know if you ever thought about this, if you've ever considered this, but I think this is a dangerous theology for our people to be exposed to, and and so this is concerning. Now, maybe they jump right up and say, "Absolutely right, that's exactly right. We should we should deal with this right now," and and yeah. put a stop to it. Or if the pastor is and he's all on board with Henry Blackaby and hearing the voice of God and Charles Stanley and Priscilla Schreier and Beth Moore, then. That doesn't necessarily make him a false teacher, but boy, it's some huge red flags, huge red flags. It at least yeah. tells me that he's not discerning. Um, and in that case, 
and I don't want this to sound like a plug for my own book because I would give away a book rather than be accused of trying to plug my book. But in that case, sure. give them a copy of God Doesn't Whisper and say, here's the other side. I think these are the concerns that this issue raises in my heart and in my soul. And I don't feel good about this. I think this is dangerous, oppressive, burdensome theology. This is not healthy for people. And if you're willing to hear the other side of this, to hear the, to hear the case against this theology, um, this book, I think, covers those issues. And I would just ask for your thoughtful, prayerful consideration of it. Well, and you do um, spend some time in your book talking about these teachers that you just mentioned. Um, and I want to bring up another one um, since we're on the topic. And that is uh, the death of Sarah Young, uh, the author of Jesus Calling. Uh, she had a, a multi-gazillion dollar empire with her Jesus Calling products, not only the book, but devotionals, a side-by-side, -side, you know, devotional within an actual Bible. And, um, it, and she taught a lot of people that she heard God's voice constantly, and here's what he said. And by the way, you need to be hearing the voice too. Um, Jim, how much damage has she done to the body of Christ? Uh, I, I've known people who have read that book, um, just Jesus calling, um, and you know they're they're warmed by it, they're encouraged by it because it's the they they in themselves hear the voice of Jesus in the pages of this book and in these mm -hmm. revelations that are given, and they can imagine Jesus saying these things about about loving them and encouraging them and comforting them, and for some reason it warms them. I, I don't get that myself. Um, I think that the book has done a tremendous damage to the church because it it contains unequivocally false and heretical notions. I have. Yeah. I, th I think on my I think on my website I have a review of Sarah Young's book Jesus Calling. Mm -hmm. um, it contains blatant heretical statements, things that Jesus would never say, things a lot of things that at best are unclear and misleading and confusing. But the, probably the most fundamental and disastrous part of that book is the fact that it does claim that these revelations are Jesus speaking. And listen, if Jesus is speaking, then he is speaking authoritatively, inerrantly, and infallibly. And if she is hearing him accurately, then she is, this is an inspired writer who is giving us the 66th book of scripture. Yeah. And that I think is the danger. People, people read that instead of scripture, because let's be honest, it's a lot easier to understand Jesus calling than it is to go back and understand the book of, Hag of Haggai or Hosea or the long prophecies in Isaiah against Moab and Nineveh and all the other nations around Israel. Those, those take a little bit of work to exegete those and to, and to get some, some meat out of them and to understand them if you're a brand new untaught believer. But Jesus calling, you can sit down with a cup of coffee and with, with no effort whatsoever, get your little chicken soup for the soul dose for the day. And yeah. that I think is the danger of that book. Not only that it misrepresents Jesus, but it's claiming to be divine inspiration uh, and divinely inspired scripture. Um, she wouldn't call it scripture, but that is ultimately what it has to be if you follow the logical um, the logical progression there. This, this must be, if it's Jesus speaking, it must be authoritative and inerrant. Jesus can't speak unauthoritative and he can't speak an errant word. It, it doesn't even sound like him, <laughs> you know, and, and no, it it's doesn't. all about no. me. It's all, you know, it's all about making me feel good. It's all about our emotions, which, um, which Michelle and I talk about all the time with women's ministries. Uh, it, it's all about making us feel good rather than pointing to uh, the You're risen right. Christ. So, yeah. Yep. It is an appeal. It is an appeal to the emotional um, side of us. Yeah. And so I, I think it's loaded with dangers. It's fraught with dangers. I don't deal with that book necessarily uh, a lot in God Doesn't Whisper, simply because I was really going for a different sort of a different niche yeah. of Christianity, uh, targeting that. Um, but yeah, Sarah Sarah Young is 
her, her stuff is new age. It is Christianity light. It mm-hmm. is just the, it is the name of Jesus, but none of the doctrine of Christ at all. Yeah. Well, let's bring Thank that you. back around to the local church a little bit, like we were talking about a little bit before. Um, it, as Amy was, was saying, if, if someone is a member of a generally doctrinally sound church and the pastor is bringing in uh, this idea of extra biblical revelation through Sarah Young's books, or like you said, Beth Moore's or Priscilla Schreier's or experiencing God or any, you know, he's introducing this idea of hearing God's voice. Uh, We would, you know, obviously agree with you that first, before doing anything else, this church member should go to her pastor and discuss this with them because unfortunately so many pastors, um, you know, we want to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they just don't know that there's a problem with the book or something like that. But if the pastor digs his heels in and says, no, you know, I really believe that people can hear God's voice. First, first of all, should she find a new church? And then second of all, do you think that assuming every, everything else about this pastor is doctrinally sound, is teaching extra biblical revelation alone enough to disqualify a pastor according to scripture? Um, if she could find a new church, get out and find a new church. I, it is so hard in today's world to find doctrinally sound churches where the word of God is honored rightly. It is, that's another email I get once a month is, do you know any churches in my area? Because we just, I I can't find any and we're stuck in this church and we've been laboring here, but man, it's dry bones and man, it is, it is difficult. And the doctrinal persuasion drives us nuts, but we got to drive two and a half hours to get to any solid church. Um, Does it disqualify him? Yes. I think it is false doctrine. I think that this is a false doctrine. I don't think he should teach it. Um, there's a lot of well-meaning guys that promote this. I did for a couple of mm-hmm. years in pastoral ministry. When I was first a pastor in 1996, I started in one of the first um, years there in pastoral ministry, I think in 96, 98, I handed out Henry Blackaby's um, Experiencing God. And I gave that to our Sunday school teachers and our elders. And we went through it. We did a men's Bible study on it. And and of course, we would read it and go through it. And then I'd say to people, but God's not speaking to us outside scripture. So don't get that impression. That's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for extra biblical revelation. We're looking for this leading and nudging and prompting and guiding of God, this not biblical revelation. And what I didn't understand is that you can't draw the line between those two. They're, they're, you can't distinguish mm-hmm. between them because it, they, they are the same thing. You're asking for God to give you information and guidance not contained in scripture and to reveal this to you. That's extra biblical revelation. So as well-meaning as I was, I was teaching something that was wrong. And I was explaining this to Amy before um, you got on, Leslie, that when I first published God Doesn't Whisper, we gave out free copies to everybody in our church. And even though that was 20 years ago or so that I that I did that, or almost 25 years ago now that I did that, it was my mea culpa for ever teaching that or ever, or, or ever publishing, promoting that in our congregation. I wanted to make up for that. And uh, my heart breaks for people who believe that and are caught in churches where that is promoted and taught. So I would say, yes, get out and find if you if you're if you've confronted them and you've talked about it and they're they're just entrenched in this theology. I would say get out. I would not be able to stay in a place where somebody was teaching that you get revelation from God in this way. 
you know, if only I had known then what we know now, um, it would have saved a lot of heartbreak, Jim, because um, Henry Blackaby's book uh, just infiltrated so many churches back then. Uh, I know in my, one of my former churches it did. You know, I came out of the, the seeker-friendly, yeah. And this was passed out not only with the adults, but especially the high school youth group. And a lot of those kids are not Christian anymore, including some that I love dearly who uh, have said, I am so sorry, but I, I tried to talk to God and, and I, I didn't hear anything at back. He didn't speak to me. So there must be something wrong with me. And in fact, Henry Blackaby even says that if there's, if you can't hear God's voice, then there's something, there's something going on and you need to address that with your faith. It's an issue. Yeah. yeah. He says you're, you're in trouble at the very heart of your Christian experience. Yes. That's the phrase he uses, which, I mean, this is what, when I was, when I believed this back when I was in Bible college, that um, God speaks to us through the still small voices. And I talk about this in one of the first chapters of my book, The Crisis at College. I reached a crisis point in my own Christian faith where I, I said, I, I want to hear the voice of God. I want these nudgings and these promptings and these impressions. I want to hear the whispers of the Savior, but I'm not hearing it. And I'm not getting any guidance. And I was waiting. There was nobody more eager than me on the college yeah. campus to hear the voice of God. And I wasn't hearing it. And finally, I started to question whether or not I was even a believer. I started to question my own salvation because I came to this crisis. Why is, why is God speaking to these other people and he's not speaking to me? Everybody else talks about hearing his voice, but I'm not hearing anything. And so is there something wrong with me? Am I not walking with him closely? And I, I finally came to the conclusion that maybe I just, maybe I just need to mature more. Maybe I need to develop the skill more and I'll pick that up later. Maybe I need to come back to college and learn how to hear this, hear the voice of God. But I came, I was, I was in a crisis myself in terms of, I started to question my own salvation. And that's the, I think one of the disasters of this theology, this methodology is that people start to, people start to, they're promised that something is going to happen to them that God has not promised them. He's made us all kinds of promises, but I will speak to you through nudgings, whispers, promptings, and impressions and guide you every step and give you signs along the way. That's not one of the promises that he has made. And so when you create this false expectation in people by promising them that God's going to do X, Y, and Z for them and they don't, and he doesn't do it, then they become disillusioned. It's like the, it's like the person who is sick or ill or whose child is sick and ill. And you take them to a faith healer who promises them that God's going to heal them if they, if they give the drain the last of their savings account and give it to the faith healers ministry. And they do so. And they push the wheelchair out of the yeah. convention center with their child, just as sick and disabled as they were when they went in. How many thousands, millions of people have been disillusioned by that and been brought to a shipwreck of their faith because God didn't do something that he they thought he promised them to, that he was going to do. And the same thing is the true with, on a much milder scale, I admit, but the same thing is true with hearing the voice of God. Yeah, there's really no verse at all in Scripture that says this is how, this is what you need to expect. You need to hear an audible uh, voice or a nudge or something. It's just not in there, is it? No, it's not. There's no passage in Scripture that tells us how to hear the audible voice of God or to be guided by the Spirit of God. There's no, we have passages that tell us how to do communion. We have passages that tell us about eldership, about deacons, about how the church should be run, about church discipline, about worship, about women in ministry, about spiritual gifts, about tongues, uh, we about church division. Um, we have passages that deal with chapters that... A marriage, First Corinthians 7. We have entire chapters of Scripture given over to all of these issues, but there's not one chapter anywhere in Scripture, not one passage to which you can turn that says, okay, when you need, when you have a decision to make, here's how you make it. You wait for this, you listen for this, then you check it with this. There's no passage of Scripture that teaches this methodology at all. What they do is they take 
these various verses, the still small voice in First Kings 19, they take the, the, the fleece with Gideon and Colossians 3.15 and the phrase being led by the Spirit. And they put all that together. They construct this whole methodology, which is not taught anywhere in Scripture and say, this is how you hear the voice of God. Uh, think about it this way. In First in, in Timothy chapter 3, when Paul talks about the qualifications for elders and deacons, leaders in the church, those two offices, the only two offices ordained by God as, as, as offices within, continuing offices within the church after the apostles died, he didn't list anywhere in there the ability to hear the voice of God or recognize the voice of God. And yet you would think that that would be an essential characteristic for uh, leadership in the church. In fact, Mark Batterson in his book, uh, Whisper, talks about how he is, uh, no, sorry, it's Robert Morris in his book, Frequency, talks about um, he can't, he couldn't possibly lead the church or effectively pastor if he weren't hearing the voice of God to make all these decisions that he needs as a pastor. And yet, though he thinks that's a qualification for ministry and a necessity for being a pastor, Paul doesn't seem to think that at all. First Timothy chapter three, when he gives the qualifications for eldership, he doesn't include the ability to hear the voice of God or listen to God speak or discern the voice of God or anything like that. Because Paul knew that God was giving to the church an infallible, inspired, inerrant revelation that he would preserve until he returned. And that would be sufficient for leadership and guidance in the church. Yeah. And but this this whole idea of extra biblical revelation is so ingrained in our psyche that, you know, maybe those of us in a basically doctrinally sound church, you know, we would we would think it was weird if if our pastor sat there in silence waiting for God to tell him something. But think about how often we hear pastors say, I was called to the ministry or I was called to be a pastor. And we, you know, that's just part of the paradigm that, that we're, that we're used to as, you know, regular as Southern Baptists, I'll say at least. Um, so it kind of sneaks in even that way. Wouldn't, would you say that, you know, a pastor saying that he had like this road to Damascus, maybe not quite as intense experience as that, but some sort of supernatural moment in his life where God just either spoke to him or did something amazing uh, to call him to be a pastor. Would that fall under the category of, of hearing God's voice like we've been talking about that? And then how does that sort of that idea sort of compare and contrast with like what you were just talking about in First Timothy three, uh, especially verse one, where it talks about aspiring to or desiring the office of overseer? Um, yeah, there's there are churches and church cultures that would say that if you didn't hear the audible voice of God or get some sort of divine call to ministry that you can't really trust that you are called to this position of elder. And yet that's not how Paul talks about biblical eldership in the New Testament. Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, if any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. And the, one of those words, the desire of uh, describes the inner compulsion to do the work and the word aspire means describes the the outward pursuit of the office and the work itself. So how do you recognize a pastor? Do you recognize a pastor as one who hears an audible voice and checks it and confirms it and God does some supernatural, miraculous, sign-based organization of their circumstances to, to put plop them into pastoral ministry? Or do you recognize a pastor by the fact that he's doing the work and he likes to do the work and he's gifted to do it? Paul would say that if he desires the work and he's gifted to do it and he meets the qualifications, then he's actually serving as a pastor or elder of a church. I think in many contexts, and this is unfortunate, 
Um, that idea that I'm the God-called pastor of this fellowship and this congregation is sometimes a, a heavy-handed leverage tactic to get people to obey him. Um, right. This is what we want to do. This is my vision for the church. This is where we're going. This is how we need to spend the money. And this is this is what we're going to do over the course of the next year. This is my vision for it because I'm the God called pastor. God called me here. I heard the voice. He told me this is what we're to do. Well, if if he's the guy that heard from God that way, then who are you to disobey or disagree or wonder about it? And so oftentimes that 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 notion of a call is leveraged in order to remove any kind of question or criticism of the pastor. And that's entirely wrong. So I, 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 this might shock some of your listeners, but I've been pastoring a church for 27 years and I've never heard the audible voice of God (laughs) telling me to pastor a church. When I was asked to take over as pastor in a moment, I kind of looked back over all of the events that had happened in my life, the desires that I had, the inclinations that I had, the giftedness that I think God had given to me. And I said to myself, this may be the best use of the gifts that God has given to me. I, I could probably do this. I, there's nothing that tells me I shouldn't do this. Um, I simply looked at my giftedness and the opportunity that I had to serve the Lord and the desire that I had in my heart. And, and that I felt was what qualified me for it. So God gave me the opportunity and, and I decided to do it. Okay. So let's say that, uh, you know, I think I had this experience and I think some of our, our listeners probably would have had a similar experience with maybe with their friends or, or loved ones. But let's say you're invited to a church to talk about hearing God's voice and why it's unbiblical. And afterwards, a lady comes up to you and tells you this really intense experience that she had that was just fraught with emotion, like like maybe she heard a voice say, go check on your baby. And she goes to the crib and the baby's choking on something. And this this voice saved her baby's life. And she is just insistent. She knows that it was God speaking to her. And she wants to know what you think. She she kind of wants you to agree with her that it was God speaking to her. Yeah. What do you say? Do you try to convince her it wasn't God speaking to her? I, I would... I would say, number one, I wouldn't call that the voice of God. I I would chalk that up to sometimes um, the Lord works through what Spurgeon referred to as extraordinary providences. There are times when our hearts are inclined or our minds think of something, and it is at just the right time and in just the right way as to cause us to do something that ends up being uh, almost, you look at it and think, man, that, that was no accident. God was obviously involved in that. I have no problem with those experiences. I, this is going to sound harsh, but I will tell people from time to time, I'm not, I, I can't exegete your experience. I can't, I can't find any kind of divine meaning in your experience. I, I don't doubt that you had this experience. I don't doubt that you felt compelled to do this. You felt driven to do this and you did it and it turned out well. That happens all the time. But here's the thing that happens to believers and unbelievers alike. I've had unbelievers say, you know, I just felt, man, I shouldn't, I shouldn't get on that bus. And then that bus was in an accident. So is God speaking to the unbeliever? Well, that goes against HVG theology, which says, number one, you need to be a believer. And then you need to learn the discipline of how to hear from God and expect to hear from him and, and cultivate this discipline and draw near to God so you can hear his voice. Well, how is that theology, a theology for believers, if unbelievers have the exact same experiences? So yes, there are weird experiences that happen. I don't always know the source of them. I don't always know what the outcome of them is going to be. And I don't always know who's behind them. All I can do is exegete scripture and say, scripture has told us that we're not to rely upon or or wait for those kinds of promptings before we do the Lord's work or before we make any kind of decision. We are not promised that God is going to lead us in that way. What about the person who whose baby died in the crib? 
and they didn't hear the voice of God. Does that mean that they weren't listening, that they didn't cultivate that discipline and that somehow now they are to blame because they, they didn't hear God's voice because they weren't quiet enough before the Lord. So they're to blame for their child's death. You see, that's, that's the burden of being driven by these experiences. Or uh, the opposite might be true too, Jim, where somebody says, yeah. I didn't hear God warn me that my baby was dying in the crib. It's God's fault. He's mean. I don't believe in him anymore. You know, and that, of course, um, yeah. you know, that, that would be a very immature faith. But that, that happens sometimes. People get angry with God because this theology takes a quite a different twist. Yeah. Um, but I do want to go back to something that you had said about, uh, you know, the, the disciplines in Scripture and uh, what, what Scripture says about, you know, many different things about ministry and, and uh, all the different uh, uh, things that we as Christians experience. One thing that we experienced that, that God was quite clear about was prayer. You know, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And I run into women a lot of times who say, Prayer is a two-way street, and you address that in your book. Can you share a little bit more about uh, prayer being a two-way street and what you would say to a lady who says that? I would say that there's nothing in Scripture that says that prayer is a two-way street. Prayer is the means by which we talk to God. His Word is the means by which He talks to us. People will often say, if you if you don't hear God speak to you, if you're, if you're just praying, it's just a one-sided conversation. Mark Batterson makes that claim. Uh, Robert Morris makes that claim. Uh, Rick Warren, Charles Stanley, they say, if it's just you praying to God and he's not speaking back to you in, in the prayer, then it's just a one-sided conversation. And how fun is a one-sided conversation? That's no fun at all. That's not a real relationship. But they're making the assumption that scripture is not the word of God and that God's not speaking through scripture. And I see quite the opposite. When I when I pray to God and then I'm I'm speaking to him my heart's desire and then I turn to his word and I read his word and I understand his word, he's speaking to me through the text of scripture. The only way that that notion makes sense, that prayer is just a one-sided conversation with the, somebody else that's no fun at all, that's not a real relationship, is if you presume or assume to begin with that scripture is not God speaking, that the word of God is some ancient book with no practicality. It's not the voice of God. There's not enough there to really keep you interested. So you can just sort of set that aside and wait for God to, to download stuff directly from heaven. I think that's an unhealthy spiritual notion. Um, the prayer is us talking to God, full stop, period. It's not, it's not us waiting to hear from God. Prayer is not the word we use for God speaking to us. Revelation is that word. And where is revelation given? It's given in scripture. Right. And, but Jim, we want intimacy. We're, we're told in conferences and books and all sorts of things. We need to have an intimate one-on-one, -on -one, uh, relationship with God. And I've heard so many women, uh, conference speakers, book authors, and it's eerily, uh, familiar that they'll sometimes say the same things. Like, uh, I had one, uh, conference, uh, speaker say that she, you know, she wanted to get alone with God and it was a beautiful sunny fall day and she actually climbed up a tree and said, you know, the leaves were just beautiful all around her. The water was sparkling below. And she clearly heard God say, I love you, which is a very common thing. Um, God says, I love you uh, audibly to uh, New Agers all the time. And it, it's it's quite a phenomenon I've, I've noticed over the years. Um, and, and we want that intimacy. So, uh, but I, I see intimacy in scripture too. I mean, real love is is God laying down his life for us. Yeah. Yeah. Doesn't, is scripture not tell her that God loves her? Why does she yes. need to climb up in a tree to hear that? I, I can sit down and read in this is the love of God manifested. Not that we loved him, but that he first loved us. 
Um, you know, God loved us enough to send uh, 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 his son to die for his enemies. While we were still his enemies, he loved us and died for us. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts, Romans chapter 1. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus calls us friends and brothers. I, I can read all of her scripture that God loves me. I don't need a still small voice to tell me that. And when I when I say, well, it's the still small voice that really warmed my heart, but scripture just leaves me cold, then you you have a problem. I would say then you are at, at, at you have trouble at the very heart of your Christian life if Scripture leaves you cold, because all over Scripture we read of what God has said to us. Um, how do I know that the voice I heard was not the devil telling me that He loves me? I have no way of knowing that, or that I just didn't invent that out of whole cloth in my in my mind. I, I have no way of knowing that. But when I read Scripture, I know this came from God. This is God's word. Therefore, I, I know exactly what it is that He is telling me because Scripture never changes and it's divine truth. So my heart is warned by scripture and I, I do have intimacy with God when I am reading scripture and I'm hearing God speak to me in the pages of scripture. And then I'm praying to God and I'm expressing my heart to God and I'm meditating upon truth. And I come to a deep understanding of scripture that brings intimacy. And it's not the warm, fuzzy kind of feeling of intimacy that gives us Holy Spirit goosebumps on our arms or some emotional attachment that we have or an emotion reaction that we have. It's an intellectual intimacy. It's a, it's an intimacy of the heart and the soul that is resting upon God's truth. And that is true biblical intimacy, not an, not an emotional, an emotional high. Emotions can be created by all kinds of things that aren't true. You know, I, I can cry at the end of an Indiana Jones movie. I may have the experience of emotion, but that is necessarily because I have understood some profound truth about God. So emotion does not equal intimacy. Yeah, but I mean, every time I read God's word, maybe not every time I read God's word, but my heart is stirred when I when I read the promises of God, when I study his word, when I yeah. contemplate what he did for me on the cross. I mean, that's a very emotional experience for me. I keep my Kleenexes nearby when I'm studying my Bible because it just really, and I think that's one of the one of the things that God does for us to create intimacy uh, is when we study his word and we, we meditate on it like we're supposed to. And we contemplate the greatness of God and the goodness of God and his mercy and his grace to us. It does stir our emotions. It's not that we depend on those emotions. It's not that those emotions are primary. It's that God is so amazing through his word that, yeah. that our hearts are, are warmed and stirred and, and, and uh, things of this nature. And really it's going back to what you said about um, prayer, you know, these teachers saying that prayer is just a, a one-sided conversation or, and that we should be having a two-way conversation with God. Well, it's only a one-sided conversation if you pray and you never pick up your Bible. Because if you want God to speak to That's you, right. just open your Bible. It's right there. Lot, 66 books, you know, <laughs> lots of things that he's saying yep. to us. That's right. Well, we've just got one more, um, one more question for you as we finish up. Why is this issue even important? I mean, if somebody wants to believe that God is talking to her, who's that hurting? What's the big deal? Why, why make a big deal about this? I think it's because it distracts people from the word of God. It minimizes the word of God and it creates in people's minds a way of God speaking that is a, a burden upon them. And um, they have a false notion of who God is and what God has done. If your view of God is that he is constantly speaking from heaven, but he can't quite get his messages through because you are not being intimate with him. You're not 
learning the discipline. You're not cultivating the discipline. You're not stilling your heart enough. And, and he really, truly is trying to speak to you. But lo and behold, he is thwarted at every turn by your busy lifestyle and because you won't listen. Uh, if that's your view of God, you're worshiping an idol. And that, I think, is is really the center, central issue. HVG theology is, an, uh, is a theology that presents, misrepresents God and presents a false idol to the Christian, a God who is trying to speak but cannot, a God who speaks and is often misunderstood, a God who can't speak with clarity or use complete sentences. That's not the God of Scripture. God has spoken in the 66 books of Scripture, and I think that uh, it is my conviction that any theology that distracts people from that or points people in another direction is actually doing their souls um, a harm and not a good. It might be warming you up. It might be giving you an emotional feel, a good feeling, but I can get that at the end of a football game when my team wins. That doesn't necessarily mean that I've actually am walking with God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've often said years ago, I kind of came up with this little kind of snarky and I, I kind of regret the snarkiness of it, but it, but I said that if, uh, if I, if I hear God's voice audibly, it's because I left my audio Bible on. So, yeah. um, yeah, but I, I, I should be a little bit more gentle uh, with that <laughs> because it, it, it is a, it is hard and, and it's a hard thing to overcome as, as I know, Jim, you've experienced in your life where your, your mind is blown and you realize that this really is truly a burden, uh, this, yeah. this teaching. So thank you for enlightening us. It's been so great to have you on the podcast today. Uh, okay. As we wrap up, though, uh, you're welcome. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? Uh, for instance, I, I know you've got a, a new book coming out soon, don't you? Yeah, uh, it's not really a sequel to God Doesn't Whisper, but it sort of takes the idea of God Doesn't Whisper and applies it to other areas of theology. It's called God Doesn't Try. And it's basically a defense of the sovereignty of God in soteriology, ecclesiology, and eschatology. So um, it's written, I'm writing it, co-authoring it with a friend of mine who's also an elder in our church. And the premise of the book is that God never fails to do anything that he ever starts to do or, or, or does. God just does. He doesn't try to do anything. He doesn't try to save people. He doesn't try to sanctify people. He doesn't try to talk to people. He doesn't try to protect you. He's not trying to provide for you. He's not trying to establish justice or, or his kingdom or build his church. God does these things. He doesn't try to do them. So that's coming out hopefully within the next couple of months. It's in the editing stage right now. Ah, can't wait. Yeah, that's fantastic. I'm looking forward to that one too. I'm trying to clean up my language oh, about you. God tries to do. Usually when I say God is, <laughs> it's, it's it hard. is. Usually when I say that God is it trying is. to teach me something, what I mean is that I'm not getting it because I'm too stubborn or I'm too, I'm not <laughs> paying attention yeah. or studying enough or something like yeah. that. But you're right. We absolutely need to be more careful about the way that we say things. Um, and so, yeah, it's it's hard to discipline. For yes, all of us. it is, and yeah. we will so definitely look forward to that book coming out. And of course, we will also put all of your links in the show notes. But can you tell our listeners where they can find your website, your social media, uh, order your book, any other links that you'd like to share? Yeah, you can go to the church website, which is kootenaychurch.org. That's K O O T E N A I church.org or probably much easier jimosman.com my last name is osman you go there it has links to the church and the youtube channel and books that i've written and a little biography and all that stuff's kind of all there they all kind of link back and forth together those are probably the two best places and i, I made this offer to the both of you before we started the podcast but if anybody wants to buy book copies of the book i can arrange that at a discounted price off of what they have on amazon so you can contact me through one of those websites and and i'll get the information to my secretary and we can get books uh, sent out to you 
at a better price than what uh, Amazon sells them for. We're happy to facilitate that for small group Bible studies or if you want to hand out the book or something like that. That is an incredible offer. Thank you so much, Jim. Very and welcome. listeners, yes, and and you have also graciously provided us with five copies of the book God Doesn't Whisper, and we're going to give those away through this episode. And uh, this is so generous of you. I know our listeners appreciate it very Let much. Let me clarify: it's not generous. It's the marketing tactics of a narcotics peddler. I give away some for free, <laughs> hoping that people will tell their friends and then they'll buy. <laughs> yeah. Well, it is quite an addictive Good book. Point. I can say that for sure. I uh-huh. I could not put it down. I it's it was a book I had been meaning to read for quite a while and once I picked it up I just couldn't stop reading it. So it is very addictive. So we're going to offer you a little crack well, and you. uh you get addicted to it. <laughs> recommend it to your friends. Order, you know, a, a, a bunch of, of copies for everybody in your church, maybe do a book study on it. We would certainly recommend that. So but uh, here's for the five free copies. Here's here are the rules. Listeners, listen carefully. OK, here's how the giveaway is going to work sometime in the next three days after this episode drops, what we want you to do is to leave a comment on our website, on our website, a word fitly spoken dot life, not on social media, not on your favorite podcast platform on the website. Okay. So you're going to go to a word fitly spoken dot life. You're going to click on recent episodes at the top, recent episodes, and then you're going to click the title for this episode. God Doesn't Whisper with Jim Osmond. Okay, so you're going to click on that episode title and you're going to leave a comment on this episode. And in your comment, you're going to tell us either one thing that you learned from this episode or share with us how the teaching that you can hear God extra biblically hurt you or a loved one. Tell us about your experience with that. Also, be sure to fill in your email address uh, correctly. And don't worry, nobody will see us see that but us. And then after three days, we will draw five names from those comments on the website and those comments alone. And we will notify you by email if you want. And if you'd like for me to repeat those instructions for you, just hit rewind and I'll repeat them <laughs> as many times as you oh, like. Oh, boy. Well, Jim, Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We just really enjoyed it. And I know our listeners did too. Yes, thank, thank you very much. You. I appreciate the opportunity. It was a pleasure and an honor. Thank you. Thanks so much. Ah, well, listeners, what did you think? Did you learn something new today about extra biblical revelation or the sufficiency of scripture or maybe uh, cleaning up our own language in the way we talk about God? I know uh, I've learned some things and I've got some work to do on that too. So head on over to our website, leave a comment on this episode to let us know so that you can be entered in that drawing for one of Jim's books. And you can also find the direct links to all of our social media pages along with our financial support information and uh, our other resources sources at our website, awordfitlyspoken.life. And until next time, to quote our friend Justin Peters, if you want to hear God speak, read your Bible. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read your Bible out loud and walk worthy. (laughs) 